happening now. We want to welcome our viewers in the United States and around the world, even in what appears to be a prison in the state of Washington. You are watching the Education Technology Situation Room, or I should say the EdTech Situation Room, and I'm Wes Fryer. Who is joining us from his hotel room? Um, my name is Jason Neifer, and I am the curriculum director and assistant director of the Montana Digital Academy. And this week, um, I am live from Seattle, Washington, where I am uh, joining um, the staff of the Northwest Council for Free Education and hosting their spring technology conference. So thrilled to be here um, and um, looking forward to tonight's discussion. Awesome. And we have Mike with us. Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself. And you're not in, in jail. Where are you? No, I'm actually um, in the uh, stairwell of the hotel. Um, Jason and I are attending the same conference together. If the echo's too bad, I can actually go into the hall. So just let me know. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We'll be able to deal with it. So okay. for those of you who may uh, be new to us, we have a page of discussion links. And um, uh, I am in Oklahoma City. I'm the director of technology at the Cassidy School. And I've known Jason for four or five years now and we've uh we've we fiddled around with some end of year tech tech shows and we just decided to to make it a weekly show thanks to Peggy George telling us about Blab, which is so much easier than a Google Hangout to get people to join. So if you're joining us tonight uh, or you or you know whenever you're seeing this, uh, you can go to edtechsr.com for edtech situation room and then you can click on links. And so we've got a Google Doc there with some news links that we're going to basically uh, throw out and talk about. And uh, we'll uh, we may be joined by Martin uh, a little bit later, possibly. And uh, we'll just kind of see see how this goes. I don't think we've had four people in the situation room before, so um, so I don't know, Jason. Why, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on with the uh, with uh, NCCE? We'll we'll let you do sure. a free promo for the conference. Sure, my pleasure. So um, NCCE hosts a spring conference. NCCE is the oldest um, ISTE affiliate in the United States, and they've hosted a, a conference every year for uh, the last 25 or so years. I was here, here in 2000. Uh, it was my first year attending the conference, um, and I've been here on and off since my jobs have changed in Montana. Um, it's a it's a great event. Um, it it brings nearly 2,000 educators from around the Pacific Northwest and the United States um, for three days of conferences. Uh, this year, we're um, featuring um, a summit model on the first day. Um, we have, um, or today, we had a Google summit. We had um, a makerspace uh, summit. We had a library uh, media specialist summit. And we also had an extended day of, of Microsoft trainings on, on things like OneNote and, and Microsoft tools in the classroom. And Incredibly uh, positive response today. I was one of the conveners of the um, the Google Summit, and we had uh, excellent speakers in today. Um, a number of really um, uh, great sessions, and the best part about it is, of course, is that the sessions are great, but it's the interaction in the hallway that's always so interesting to me. So I uh, connected with uh, a number of IT directors today. My my session was on digital privacy and the Google. A sphere and and what steps you can take to kind of lock down your private data and know what you're sharing to get the data of exchange with companies like Google and um, it's been a really positive day so I very much enjoyed um, how things have played out. Awesome, Mike. You want to give us an update for your NCC experience so far? So far. 
Yeah, so today I ran on social media for NCC, and what was really, what really stood out to me was how interactive all the, um, all the workshops were, and I think what was really positive was, I think people are starting to get that, you know, there's definitely still, um, room for lecture in learning, but, uh, more importantly, is getting people engaged and actually working with technology. And it was just really encouraging to see that throughout the day. Almost every session had some interactive component, um, even if it was just a back channel, but uh, really thoughtful in how they designed the learning that was occurring, whether it was a session or a workshop. And, you know, it just made me feel like, yeah, we're making progress. We're getting it. We're really thinking about how, as adult learners, we need to be doing more than just sitting and getting. You know, we need to be actively engaged in the learning process as well. So, Absolutely. And on that note, we want to encourage you, our cast of 14 listeners out there live, to engage with us. And if you want to use the hashtag EdTechSR, we will monitor that on Twitter. If you're here, in which you are, inside our chat, <clears throat> there are there are several codes which you can use, which I haven't memorized yet. But um, I think it's like slash Q. Yeah, you do. It, whatever. I think that's a forward slash Q and then space. And then type your question. We'll actually get it over in a questions list. And so we can identify that. We've got a little thing over here on the side. Um, or just put something into the chat and we would love to, to field your question. So I'm going to kick us off with a article and, uh, say a little bit about it and then throw it to you guys. And one of the, one of the fun things, and Jason's done this to me before, you know, or I don't know, maybe I just wasn't preparing in advance enough to read the article, but you guys may not have seen this. It's an article from today. Uh, this was from Ed Surge and the article's titled The White House and Michelle Obama Released $250 Million Open Books App for Title I and Special Education Teachers. And so I, I if I'm going to write a blog post about this, it's going to be a great program with a terrible name because <laughs> what they've done is worked with commercial publishers, at least 10 of them, and found popular books that they have paid money to license and so if you are at a Title I school or you're a special education teacher anywhere, you can register on this website, you can get this app, and then they'll, they'll give you codes for your kids to be able to access it and be able to download these books. So ebooks, great, you know, access to, you know, engaging literature that students are going to want to read, awesome. Uh, calling it open ebooks, really bad because the White House actually launched an initiative earlier Oh, well, I guess it was last year called the, it was called open access, I think, or, and it, and it, open it. And so the open educational resources movement is really an important and awesome thing that's happening in education. For instance, algebra one here in Oklahoma, probably a little similar to what you got going in Montana or Washington, sharing curriculum, you know, having open access that's free that you don't have to pay for. That's what open access is all about. So, you know, I, I'm glad to see this initiative, but, but I honestly think it's going to be confusing for people because it is hard enough to try to educate people with what OER is and what open access is, you know, and now we have the, the first lady of the country, you know, announcing a program that says it's open ebooks and they're not open ebooks. It's, you know, restricted and they're commercial. So any comments on that guys, Jason? Yeah, I, let me start off with, this really reminds me of a, a, a controversy a couple of years ago. Um, there was a, uh, 
uh, right when the OER uh, debate kind of came to uh, uh, a head, there was a number of, of uh, charter school groups, um, a, a couple of, of corporate private school groups that were running around calling, calling themselves the, the the open ed initiative, open this, open that. And David Wiley, who's the, the super uh, OER advocate from uh, Utah wrote a really great blog post that I just found again that's called Open Washing, the New Greenwashing. He talks about the phenomenon of, of about 15 years ago of greenwashing in marketing, which was the idea of trying to frame something as a an environmental movement to try to get people to do what you want to do. And so as an example of that, um, you know, like, in fact, I'm sitting in a hotel room right now that, um, you know, has signs all over the place saying, please don't, you know, please don't throw your towel on the ground. Please reuse your towel so you could save the environment where that's a laudable goal, but probably their, their bigger goal is to save on, on washing because there's an economic piece there. So they're green washing that. And, uh, Dr. Wiley's, uh, notion was to add, um, um, you know, open to the word to things to try to take the, the cachet of open education and then, um, uh, you know, utilize that whether or not there may be an open free piece of that or not. So I would definitely agree that while a laudable goal, um, there is definitely a, uh, it, it's, it's bad naming. And I've been very encouraged the, the movement you talked about, Wes, the uh, open education stuff from the Department of Education in late 2000, um, 15. In fact, I was, I was at the CETA, the State Educational Technology Director Association Conference when there were some, um, Department of Education folks that were there, uh, kind of promoting that. And I thought that was a very forward movement, but they, they certainly understood what open education was. So I'm assuming the Department of Ed was part of this discussion and it would seem that someone would have vetted that conversation at some point to, um, you know, to say that you could come up with, I mean, even calling them free ebooks would be more appropriate and right. more accurate than calling them open books. Right. Mike, what do you think? Well, the thing that I was getting a little hung up on and just looking at the details is um, when you look into kind of the FAQ of, of the sites, they're talking about this is an initial three-year commitment. And this is the thing that I'm always a little leery of with anything that says that it's open. I mean, to me, you would have the foresight to set an infrastructure up so that this, whatever, whatever's done would be open forever. Like one of the things I think we need to always be careful about as educators is um, being mindful of what's what's the fine print with all these new initiatives. And if there's an end date that's set, I think we need to look carefully at, like, are we going to go all in as a school or as a district with something that from day one has only a three-year commitment? Um, I just think, I think it's an important point to consider. Definitely. And maybe we can drop, thanks to Peggy, she, she dropped a couple links into the chat for the open ebooks. And then the article that Martin had mentioned, he put in the chat, uh, asking about Amazon having a big push to buy, to buy up old Kindles with a trade up program. And so wondering if maybe that had something, something to do with that. I hadn't heard Jason about that idea of greenwashing or whatever, but it, it, it really does seem that way. I mean, it's, it's, it is a misuse of the word open. Um, not that we're, I don't know. I mean, we, we probably should let our voices be heard about that. And because advocating for open, it is, it is not going to be the textbook industry that's going to do this, right? It is going to be educators. It's going to be parents. It's going to be students. The traditional regime of instructional materials in this country is a very influential lobby. It touches every single school district and it's been hap, you know, it's been going on for years. And so, 
I, I think that, you know, I would call on people to, you know, write about this on your blog, you know, tweet about this. Um, you know, it, it's an initiative that, that it should be renamed because it's really not about open. But, you know, I guess you're going to, I don't know what the right analogy for that is when you're like, you know, you're not the enthusiastic guy, you're, you know, deflating the balloon or something like that. It, 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 it sounds exciting, but there's, there are bandwagons to be on, and I believe one of them that we should be on is is the open educational resources movement and and also the the open access movement. And so, you know, there's there's pieces of this that that are there, <clears throat> but I guess we maybe we shouldn't be surprised. You know, it was great to see the White House get on the OER bandwagon, but you know, here we've seen a little misdirection. But that's where we have opportunities as practitioners in the field, maybe to, you know, give a little give a little pushback and. And, uh, let, let people know, you know, what OER is. I've really found here in Oklahoma, we had an, uh, an edu- a, uh, digital learning summit with our former superintendent, uh, who is not a, not a very popular person, <clears throat> but it was a, a good thing to bring together these leaders and talk about digital learning. <clears throat> but, you know, th- there were some conversations that we had in a curriculum group about openly licensing materials to say, if we do this, why don't we ask people to, you know, put a creative commons license on their materials and that whole idea of <laughs> create stuff for your school, for your district, you know, let's look at, at pooling resources. And again, that, that flows against the grain. People aren't used to thinking about that kind of generous sharing. They're more thinking about, we're going to build, you know, we're going to get a grant and it's going to benefit our school or it's going to, you know, be a little bit more proprietary and independent. So Jason, have you guys, uh, do you use OER with the, the Montana Digital Academy or has, how has that affected Montana? Is OER a thing? Yeah, it, it is a thing here. Um, <laughs> we re- really like open education resources quite a bit. The biggest challenge for us has been that, uh, well, first of all, Mike mentioned licensing before that there have been some OER resources that, um, were initially released under open licenses and then for whatever reason were pulled, which complicated, um, our use of those materials. But the other thing that's been a real challenge for us is that, um, it does take a fairly gifted teacher to orchestrate, um, and I'm mentioning that word because with, uh, I'm stealing, um, uh, Martin's, uh, a term of information orchestration, but it takes a pretty gifted teacher to take a bunch of diverse OER resources and then turn them into a cogent lesson that makes sense to a student. I think that's a teaching act, in my humble opinion. So I, I think a teacher should be able to do that. And it appears that we've lost Mr. Fryer, um, <laughs> the host, which I have no idea what happens when the host disappears. Um, but, you know, I do think that, that open education resources are, um, you know, certainly a factor in, in our program. So, um, and I know, Mike, you, you came to our program a bit after we started. Uh, has your view of OER changed at all since you've been more on the, the kind of curriculum side? the teaching side? Right. Well, I think your point is a good one. Um, and the, I mean, my view on it is OER is great if you have a specific focus of a hole you're trying to fill, right? So, like, in a curriculum path, if you're looking specifically for take earth science, for instance, and maybe it's something around uh, different types of rocks or something, if that's your focus and you know going in – Okay, this is the hole I need to fill in uh, in my course or in my instruction. That's one thing. But I think your point is a good one that, you know, when we go in and expect to wade through oftentimes thousands and thousands of resources, which all could be good, it just, I think it's unrealistic to think that uh, a teacher is going to spend that time or should spend that time. 
Right. And that's, I, I think that's a big part of this. Part of what's always excited me about OER is what Utah has done with science books um, in their state, that they took the CK-12 library, which I think is a solid start of, 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 of a textbook um and then they've taken it and given it to teachers hands to adopt and modify and shape and in the end i think that's the most powerful part of this model is empowering teachers to fix things that are wrong and adapt and change i mean i um i used to joke about this with my students um uh, i generally didn't use a textbook in um my regular classes i did use it when i taught ap european history because that's part of what the expectation is from the college boards to use a college level text but i joked quite a bit that um, in fact, I had a rubber stamp that, that, that mimicked the edit button on, on Wikipedia to kind of make this point a bit of a funny joke. But like, I wish sometimes I could go in and meet, you know, hit the edit button and delete these three paragraphs or get rid of unclear text or, you know, direct student to a better external text. And that's in my mind what I've always wished textbooks could be. I don't care if they're commercially written or they're, they're openly written. If, if I could be empowered to, with myself and my colleagues and my students fix what's wrong, that would be a really powerful model. And it's just never, it's just never been there yet. Um, and the other piece that's always been challenging for me is there's a lot more stuff in the sciences and mathematics subjects than there are in the humanities. And in, and other than the core text, it's hard to find things in the English language arts too. And that's always been a weakness of the model as well. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, you know, part of this, in, in a world where that you could really edit and you could really change on the fly, think of how amazing it would be to merge what would typically be a historical text or just the basic knowledge with real current events. I mean, those yeah. type of things really don't exist. And to have a living, breathing textbook that takes, you know, tried and true lessons of the past with what's happening right now and be able to update that, you know, at your leisure every year and, kind of evolve the thinking as we all do over time. It just doesn't really happen with a textbook. It's so right. locked in a single piece of time. And unfortunately, with the current price structure, you know, it's 10, 15 years before uh, those textbooks are updated within the district. And, you know, the best teachers obviously supplement and add to the learning experience, but... Boy, it would be amazing if those, uh, especially like a digital textbook, could, yeah. could do that as well. Absolutely. Well, um, I'm going to take over main hosting duties. I, I just did get a ping. I wonder if that's from Wes. Uh, with, I don't know. For all, I, I don't know if he, Martin, are we still broadcasting? Are we still broadcasting? Okay. So apparently we're still broadcasting. So, um, uh, we'll continue on with, with our, our topics. Mike, I'd like to talk about an article. Um, about Google getting rid of Picasa and moving over to Google Photos. So uh, cool. three weeks ago, Google announced that they would be getting rid of their Picasa service, which has been the core of their photo strategy uh, for uh, uh, nearly a decade now, and are moving all of Picasa's both um, web-based properties um, and their photo storage uh, to Google Photos. And so I think there's a couple questions here. First, um, whether there's any impact uh, either personally or professionally with this move with anyone on the panel today. And then second, you know, I, I think we need to also talk about the, the, the deprecation conversation as it specific, specifically relates to Google. So first, Mike, are you a Picasso user at all? 
you know, I was traditionally, and then I went, I went all into Google Photos about a month ago, right before the announcement. And so, um, and so far, I mean, it was a small sample size, but all my Picasso stuff moved over. So it, it, for me, I mean, I, I wasn't moving over maybe, I don't know, uh, around a hundred images. Um, but it was fine. So as far as the transfer, it was not a big deal. I mean, one of the things that it is just such a good reminder of is that, you know, all of these free technologies that we have, one of the things we always have to be mindful of is, you know, at any, any point in time, the, uh, the owner of that technology can pull it off the table. And, and when that happens, you know, it, especially in an education setting, it can be significantly disruptive. Yep. Um, Dr. Fryer has rejoined the conversation and he says that he had a crazy home internet crash. So I'm sorry to hear that you've not had the broadband access you were looking for, um, in your home, but <laughs> no, um, no Google fiber here yet. <laughs> yeah, no Google fiber there yet. And, and oddly enough has not made it to Missoula, Montana either. So, um, we're talking about the loss of Picasso, um, to, um, uh, the community and, and, and uh, the probably more broadly, the loss of, deprecated Google tools, but were you impacted at all by the Picasso closing? So we've got a teacher in our elementary, uh, you know, lower school that is a Picasso fanatic. He just, he loves Picasso. He's got all kinds of slideshows. Um, I just was <clears throat> actually kind of trying to help maybe wean him towards Google Photos, anticipating this. And there's also some compatibility issues where on a mobile device, you know, the slideshows that he's got, um, I think we learned that he could provide some direct links to them, but anyway, there was you know, there were different issues. It's it's basically kind of a an old uh, early Web 2.0 technology. So, uh, yeah, I, we we mentioned last time. I think the fears about Flickr. I mean, that's what I that would that would really be sad if that happened. But you know, it's it's why we need to look for transcendent tools. Like we're going to need a place to share photos. Maybe that's going to change. Once I look at, at web tools too as like investments and what do you digitally invest in? Because, you know, I used to really invest in delicious for social bookmarking and then it was, uh, Digo. And then I just kind of, kind of like, I don't keep bookmarks on my computer anymore. I don't, I don't even do that anymore. You know, now you can search for things and I use Twitter. Uh, Jason talks about information traps and how you need to have a place to trap information. So yeah, I think it's, it's part of the landscape and it's, you know, it can be, it can be, it can be tough. Um, but also it can help people grow and expand and, and go beyond what they, you know, had done before and were comfortable with. So really it's just that one teacher that I know of at our school who's a real, you know, dedicated Picasso user. And so what, what I'm in the midst of right now, actually, with one of our teachers is exploring whether Google Drive and sharing a slideshow out of that or uh, whether Google Photos is going to be a better workflow for her. She's uh, one of our – well, she is our elementary art teacher. Just awesome. She's been working with an iPad, learning about Audio Boo, just had an art show where kids recorded stuff about their pieces. They had the QR codes. You know, parents were coming in, scanning them. It was like – Beautiful moment, um, and she needs a workflow that will will allow her to have a lo- take take lots of pictures, but not spend tons of time, you know, putting the meta information in for each one and for each student. So, do you guys have any any hints along those lines, especially in the Google, you know, ecosystem as far as either Google Drive and folders or or Google Photos? Um, I would say that my early experiments with Google Photos suggest that that their strategy is going to be that that they don't want you to organize them. 
Like that, that sounds, um, a little ridiculous, but I think it's true that they really, um, would prefer, um, um, to, you know, just utilize search. And, and you may remember that Google was under a bit of fire last year because they started using some of their big data, uh, photo identification products. So you could, you know, search for, you know, fire trucks in your photos. It would show you photos of fire trucks, right? And then, they had a problem where someone um, was identified, I think, as a chimpanzee who happened to be an African-American gentleman, and it led to all sorts of, of shenanigans. But, like, Great. that that itself was – and part of it was that – and I listened to a, a really brilliant podcast on this uh, – I keep going back to note to self, but uh, – Oh, and that's was, a great wreck, too. I've yeah. been listening to it, by the way. Uh, no, just else amazing. Um, but, uh, they, she talked to a, a data scientist, I think from MIT, who said that, you know, you don't understand that, that the machine learning is not even a toddler yet, like in its intelligence. And so it's really, really, really dim right now. It's going to be pretty smart down the road, but the, the intelligence that goes into I'll, that is pretty awful. I'll say this. The unclassified commercial version, which we are using today, is at its toddler stage. You oh, know, yeah. If you think that's, of DARPA being 10 to 20 years ahead, there there are some that are probably using right. using that that's a little bit further advanced. But, but and, yeah. they're li- and they're listening to us right now, but that's not the point of, of our piece <laughs> of our Paranoia Tonight. But um, uh, that's a great name for podcast, Paranoia Tonight. Um, we are, uh, but I keep thinking that, that, that search strategy is, is going to be where I think it's going to go. And if you think about it, even Facebook isn't great about folders, like you can create albums and that's kind of like the analog version of what you did with photos and yada, yada, yada. But, uh, yeah, I think they're really more of a search strategy. Um, but I got to say though, um, I, I actually did this today. Uh, it, I, I did a session on Google and privacy today and how to lock down your privacy settings should you wish to do so. But, the revelation for me in Google lately is that, you know, they've been tracking us with the map application and you can go in and check your location history. One of the things about your location history is they aggregate your photos into your location history. So I, my favorite one is I go back to a trip I took with my wife and, and a, a good friend of mine from college to Iceland and I happened to have a 3G iPad rolling around my two weeks there and it tracked all my locations. And then when I dumped my photos in there, um, two years later, it figured out the dates and times and some of them were geocoded. And then it said, Hey, guess what photos you took here? And I'm like, like, first of all, it was mind blowing in a negative way, but then it was like super mind blowing in a positive way because look what, look what sharing this data with Google has brought me. I mean, it's, it's a gift from Google in my mind that it's able to you know, show me photos I took at certain locations. So I think that the search or that it really doesn't expect us to organize things in the way we used to organize things. Instead, it's going to do large of that lifting for us. Yep. Use the algorithm and trust the, trust the cloud. Exactly. To basically do some of that work for us. What about you, Mike? You know, the other, the other, uh, piece of this that's kind of cool with Google Photos is my wife's an Android user and I'm an iOS user and we've gone all in uh, with Google Photos as our sharing method to um, combine and sync uh, both phones and I have to say that Google Photos has worked really well on iOS. Um, anytime I take a picture, the only the only lag really is um, I've chosen to wait to have photos upload until I'm on Wi-Fi. Now I could choose to, to be on LTE, but I'm trying to be, you know, data plan sensitive. So, uh, 
that's the only that that would be the only thing. But it also is doing a great job of backing up and archiving all video, even over five minutes, which was something that I was really interested in. Um, you know, filming my daughter's basketball games and things like that. I wanted to make sure that it would it was a true backup solution, and it's it's really worked well. Um, the one thing with search that I think is interesting that I. I'm actually wishing they would go further with, even though it's a bit scary, is the facial recognition uh, for, for searching. I mean, I, you know, to me, if I'm going to go all in and use this, then I want the power of their algorithms so I can say, you know, date and my daughter, and boom, I get those pictures from that, that time. I don't need folders then. I don't need anything else because I can remember when those pictures were taken. So. Well, it's kind of like bookmarks too, you know. I do not bookmark. I don't, we should, we could track this for milestones. When did you stop trying to organize and keep bookmarks on a computer, you know? Right. And then if people have, I'm not saying everybody will, but you know, I the social bookmarks. Did you stop doing that? This, it's, it is like with photos, you know, because what we want to do is to be able to find stuff and and organize stuff and you know use stuff. And so if the if the algorithms are there to be able to do it. We were discussing tonight driving home that, you know, about Siri. I mean, my daughter loves to talk to Siri and ask her questions. And, you know, we learned tonight you can have Siri flip a coin. You can have Siri beatbox. You can have Siri uh, roll a six-sided dice. My wife is like, we're, we got to figure out a way to learn this stuff. Like there's all these new ways we could be doing it. So, but I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about the organization because as I, as I work with this teacher, we're going to talk about that, I think, because that's just kind of the shift. It's not just what you used to do in Picasa, you know, because at one point I used to keep all my photos in a folder on my local hard drive, and then I would right. upload them to Flickr. Now I just trust the cloud, you know. I just push it up there. I delete it. I'm not as concerned about that that local site. So I think take, having that shift to, you know, not worrying about the organization. However, it, there's different ways this intersects for yourself and as a consumer and a, and a person at home. Versus a teacher, you know, wanting to share things from our first grade class or sharing things from, you know, Miss Smith's class or something like that. Right. It's a little bit different. But um, anyway. You know, one, um, other thing, one of the other things, Wes, that I think might be an interesting thing to look into is I keep thinking of gifts, you know, that, that this is Jason and I's go-to, at, like, how can we make the Internet of Things go crazy for us and, and work in a way? And what one of the things I was thinking about from a teacher point of view is if you're taking pictures at a certain time frame, I wonder if there's an if script you could set up so that at a certain time, for instance, period one, right, at the very least they were tagged automatically period one. So on, you know, Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 o'clock. Nice. Pictures I take that uploaded sure. either before or after it's going to say period one. And now I have an organization structure um, at least to start, right? So. Well, this is where the, the Douglas Rushkoff you know, program or be programmed, uh, or the whole hour of code, all of this. I mean, th this is where we do need to, to take agency over these devices. And as we have an idea for an app or for an algorithm, you know, we ought to figure out a way either for us to, you know, do that or have students do that. Cause yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about this a lot with, 
the ways in which I'll manipulate something before I put it on Twitter, it's like, why isn't there an app for that? You know, why isn't there an algorithm? I'm doing this in a fairly mechanical way where I'm looking up somebody's Twitter ID because I want to, you know, give them credit and, and whatnot. So what you're describing about the tagging, you know, probably is, or, or suggest that to Google. I mean, receptive companies are looking for that next app and that next thing. And, and that kind of thing is it would be very useful to be able to say, Hey, I'm a teacher. Let me put my schedule in. I want you to tag it and you'll know when I take this picture at this location that this was Miss Smith's class. You know, why not organize an album and, and just do that all for me? And who knows? Maybe Google Photos will, will allow us to do that. They're collecting the information already with geolocation and, and time yeah. information. It's, it's, so that's just a matter, just like if, like you said, with if, if this, then that, it would be just a matter of putting those things together in a conditional statement and then saying, throw this in an album. So that, that's a doable yeah. thing. I don't have the coding skills for that, but, but you know, at some point, and I'm, I'm sure you know, people- I'm sorry. Uh, at some point that's going to be natural mm-hmm. language, right? I mean, I think that's where all this is leading to. And um, I'm starting to get a little more in depth in this because this is going to be part of the nature of, of my dissertation is on uh, tools like Siri in the classroom. But I think that, you know, they're, they're not advancing as quickly as I had hoped to be, to be quite frank. I thought we'd be a little farther at this point. Um, with Google Now and Cortana and Siri, like, in, able to have more complex conversations. But that's that's most certainly where this is going, that in the same way that, uh, um, you know, that, well, even Google Now, it's not, they haven't abandoned using, um, you know, more advanced search terms, but they're, 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 they're becoming more natural language because they're adapting to their users. And I think... That's also going to be true of, of things like, like Google Photos. So I am, I am very excited to find out, uh, kind of what direction that will go into. Okay. Well, hey, I want to, I want to throw out another article. Uh, this was one that we, we've, it's been two weeks and we know that our dedicated audience has just been, you know, dying to be able to get back into the situation room. So this one was, was, um, well, I guess it was only from the 12th, but this was AT&T to begin testing 5G 10 to 100 times faster than 4G LTE. So this idea that, you know, my children will laugh, iPhone 6, <laughs> how weak your phone was, you know. I mean, in, in 10 years, in 20 years, the speed of this is going to look pathetic. And, you know, there I think they were talking about, I don't know, I haven't opened the article, but it was like 2025 or it was like 10 years, you know, down the road. Um, but you know, the, the fiber stuff, my, my in-laws have Google fiber, my sister and her husband and family in uh, the Kansas city area, they have Google fiber. Um, you know, they've shared their Plex, uh, w- you know, an account and I'm not exactly, <laughs> hopefully there's no one from the NSA who'll be contacting me with, you know, why are you doing this? I, I, I think that's legit, but I mean, they've got their movies, they share their library you know, we're playing it over Google Fiber, you know, from our house. They've got like 300 movies. What it, what does this mean for schools and for the way that we prepare, you know, teachers and students when the speeds are just going to be unbelievably fast and they already are almost at a point where you're like, do I really need a faster processor in my computer? And the transmission speeds. I mean, does, does anybody have a, an answer for that? Does that, I know it blows our minds, kind of like seeing an Ian Jukes presentation we're like oh my gosh we're all going to be you know jacked into the to the matrix well I think I don't that's know. one thing though that i i do feel as a concern is my hope is i i'm always sensitive uh in rural montana uh there's a lot of places that still don't have access to 4g and one of the things that 
I just I want to be mindful of, and I, I hope that we get this figured out, is that as we're rolling out new technologies, I hope part of the consideration is how do we reach even those areas that aren't profitable for the company, right? Because every student deserves that experience. And, you know, you shouldn't be penalized or have a a subpar education just because you choose to still farm or live in a rural area of the United States. And so, you know, I'm super excited about what these speeds mean for interactivity, for the ability to simulate face-to-face learning environments digitally. Um, but I also hope that, that one of the big considerations is how do we get this out to everyone? Yeah, I would add to that that, you know, there there are quite a few people looking for G right now that don't care about 5G, right? Like, and I keep thinking to myself that, uh, um, you know, there are stretches in Montana. And mind you, there are more sheep there than people, right? These are eastern Montana sheep farms that would probably be better off just putting up their own mesh Wi-Fi networks, right? Like the expanse we're talking about, uh, their, their connectivity would be better off going in that direction. But um, you know, um, the, the vast ranches of Montana, uh, lack that access and, um, you know, what, what do we do with that? Uh, but I think the other thing that, that is interesting about this is that I knew schools would be challenged when kids were bringing in access in their pockets, um, to the internet, right? Um, Absolutely. and to add further complication to that is if, um, we need to get to a point absolutely when, when, the bandwidth is cheap enough to not worry about it, right? Mike and I were talking about Verizon offering some bizarre um, thing right now for if you go buy a Galaxy S7 cell phone, they'll for every line on your account, they'll give you an extra two gigs a month for life. So that would effectively double the amount of bandwidth available to my family, for example, and, and how much we buy for and all my parents and in-laws are on, on our family account. But um, there's still a limit at some point, right? So if it's 5G plus, um, you know, unlimited access, that's that's an incredibly disruptive tool to carry that in your pocket. And then schools at that point, you know, I, and I know they they will want to worry from a from a uh, 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 filtering concept or f- filtering uh, point. But you know, I I hear a lot of IT directors that that, you know, are worried about bandwidth now and that, you know, I, there's a, an IT consultant in Montana that says no matter how much bandwidth you have right now, you should be working on tripling it. And people kind of take, taken uh, shocked by that, but, you know, high bandwidth applications are not going away. Uh, interactivity will require high bandwidth. And if the district's not going to provide it and the kid's got it in their pocket, I don't think there will be able at some point to, st- I mean, we can't, you know, we can't put metal detectors and stop them from bringing their devices. So, you know, that will definitely change the way we, we approach access. Peggy George put into the chat about the California superintendent that put wireless on buses so the kids could, could use it. You know, those, that makes headlines. I think one of the fundamentals is always going to come down to what are we going to do with this? You know, certainly we understand watching video and having access to YouTube and to, uh, I don't know, PBS digital media. My, my wife and I have been involved with that. There's, there's amazing content on PBS and, you know, they've really reinvented themselves with their, uh, their web portal. Um, but you know, beyond that, I feel like we still haven't moved very far beyond 
you know, 2000 and whatever with the read write web, you know, as far as the interaction, you know, we have relatively small, small numbers of classrooms who are using blogs interactively for students to publish their work for an outside audience. My wife and I are starting to talk a lot about inside and outside sharing. Inside sharing is what we do in the class and we do it inside a walled garden with a password. But there's a lot of power in sharing outside. There's not a lot of outside sharing happening in classrooms. So, you know, even though there's this woohoo 5G for the cities, you know, in Oklahoma, we've got over 500 districts. Most of those have less than 200 students. Um, all of them have superintendents and we just, you know, had a big hoopla in the legislature because they were talking about consolidation and nothing gets the folks out of the, you know, into the state house and, and you know, into talking to their representative, like saying the word consolidation. So, and it was defeated. Um, you know, so it's a, it, it is a good thing that cell, cellular connections are, are getting faster and faster. I think it, it actually ties to another article that I had dropped in, uh, which is called Facebook and the New Colonialism. And it was about Mark Zuckerberg, you know, saying uh, the, the colonial word, but talking about India and other, you know, parts of the world where, you know, Facebook and Google think they're going to kind of ride to the rescue and provide connectivity and provide, you know, all of these solutions. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's exciting that we're, ha- that we're, em- that we're empowering people. It's disruptive and it challenges those ideas of filtering and saying, wait a minute, you thought you were going to, you know, filter the whole internet. Well, now kids are bringing, you know, a device that may provide them with faster connectivity than they could have. Um, Anyway, I don't know if I'm, I'm connecting those ideas very well, but basically there's, there's always been a lot of promises and hoopla, you know, like with E-rate. Oh, you're going to have a high-speed connection. You're going to have a T1 line. But, you know, what did we do with that T1 line? Did we let kids actually talk to other kids in other places or, you know, publish or share things or, you know, do anything besides, you know, have a very traditional sort of teacher-directed experience? So I think these these headlines are are exciting. But it is up to educational leaders to have a vision for how we'll use these tools and the kinds of interactions. Back to what Mike said about interactive lessons, taking that digital, you know, and then letting the interaction move beyond the classroom. I mean, that's, that's still, there's a, there's a conference going on right now with Australian educators. Um, Peggy George actually told us about it today in a meeting and, you know, it's, there's so much exciting thing. There are exciting things happening on the edge as far as e- educational innovators, but it can still be relatively depressing to sometimes just be back in the mainstream, you know, where people are like, what, what you're doing, what you're doing that with kids. That's, you know, that's so scary. Aren't they going to get hurt? Aren't they all going to get kidnapped? Well, and, and maybe we should have a Facebook week sometime in the near future, because I, I've been knee deep in a couple of Facebook articles this week too, that how much Facebook challenges, our interaction with one another, our maybe maybe a maybe a Facebook themed uh, show would be a good idea. But I, I do think that um, the access question and what I what I took from that article was mostly related to um, you know if 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 we can't there are places where absent a corporate interest there may not be a broad rollout of broadband internet. And what makes it difficult for me is the way the, the Atlantic article staged that is that that's the language of colonialism, right? And I'm, I'm familiar with that because I've taught this content every year for 20 years, right? Like I, I get that and I know how difficult that is. And I know that it sounds like I'm using the white man's burden argument when, when I, when I say that, but there may be places where the only the kickstart to the development of access may be a company like Facebook coming in doing it. 
But at the same time, we have places in the United States that struggle with access. Rural country or rural uh, uh, areas is definitely a part of that, as, as Mike pointed out earlier. But, um, you know, I think about the number of um, you know, medium-sized Montana towns that have one Internet provider. And that Internet provider provides 1.5 megabit down Internet. And, uh, like, the whole town's on one pipe. So if someone's streaming a Netflix uh, that night, uh, much like the Friar household deals with, the whole town has lost their Internet for the night. Um, and there, I've, I've heard lots of stories about, uh, particularly Midwestern rural towns that, uh, from, from other tech directors that say that, you know, that the, the router went through the county and someone unplugged the router. And so, so the town lost internet for a couple of days before they figured it out because, you know, that infrastructure is expensive and it, it requires maintenance and, and future planning. So I think that equitable access question will continue to haunt us. And, you know, and, and it's funny because I, I, I have, probably what's considered to be a lot of access. And I complain about my 60 megabit down internet sometimes because um, I'm just not able to download these updates very fast. And, um, you know, so I think there's a, there's a sliding scale there certainly, but, but certainly questions are inspired by this debate. Here, here's a positive spin to put on this. You know, <clears throat> my grandmother uh, in the latter parts of her life watched CNN nonstop all day long. And, and, and she had a fairly negative view of the world because that's what she was watching. But um, because we're being more connected, I mean, there there is a lot of things that we need to address, right? Like we because of connections, you know, things that are going to happen in other places are able to influence. We have memes, things on YouTube, things that go across the web that might have taken a long time to, you know, make it from town to town. I, I don't know what the right words for this, it, the right words are, but, you know, when we think of, let's say, the Middle East and we think of radical Islam, we think of voting in Saudi Arabia. I think we just we just had, you know, um, some women elected to office in Saudi Arabia or not being able to drive. We think of rights and things that are happening with labor. There really are some positive dynamics that are happening because of the, the exchange of ideas. Yeah. Sure, there's a lot of negative, but in terms of students, you know, being exposed to other cultures, other ideas, um, I mean, on the negative side, somebody may say we're having a homogenization of culture, but there's going to be some other kind of word that maybe somebody can help us with that is basically the positive influence of having shared values and being exposed to things and not just, you know, living inside your bubble of normal and saying, gosh, this is the way it has to be and the way that it is for everybody. Anyway, that, that is happening with the internet. I, I think, you know, there's, there's dangers in some of the ways that, you know, some countries and, and, and folks are trying to say, you know, lock it down. Let's not have it so open, but so far, there's still there's still a lot of positive that are happening, and I think you're totally right. Without the the activity of a Google, like who's going to put 3G connectivity across some of these latitudes of the southern hemisphere or or, or whatever? So, um, I don't know. It's I'll, here's a, here's an impact because part of what we said we want to do is kind of bring it to the classroom. We need to provide, and I'm speaking to myself, <clears throat> more opportunities to help process this change because the changes that are happening really are tectonic and they're coming so fast. And even though it's coming slower to rural, you know, there's an awareness of Netflix. There's an awareness of what, you know, you're missing out on. And, and these technologies, especially with wireless are, you know, it, it is 
the possibilities of, of accessing things faster is happening. But I don't know. We, we just, this is why this ed tech situation room is fun too, because this gives us a chance to process and a chance to kind of talk through what does it mean? You know, is, does this mean I, I need to do something different? And, uh, you know, it's, we don't have a decade to get used to the CD player or whatever, you know, it's, the the uh, what was that called? The churn is just happening more quickly. So I don't know. That might that might actually be a good question. How how do you guys, besides going to conferences, process change? And do you do you see that as a need in communities and and you know the schools to help teachers process it to figure out what to do with it rather than saying, you know, I'm not a tech person. Well, I mean, my view on that is always you hear often from teachers that. You know, oh, I feel like I'm so far behind or I, I, I can't catch up. And my answer is always, you know what, start with one or two tools that that you can integrate on on hopefully a daily basis in your life, right, That with your students and then really get good at that and start somewhere and take those steps. But then I think the next step is not becoming comfortable as soon as you hit a level of, you know, I, I'm okay at doing it, working in Google Docs or whatever, but keep pushing yourself to keep experimenting and keep being a model for your students, right? I mean, that's the thing about teaching is that we always have to be mindful of is that the kids are looking to us to see what, you know, what kind of learner are we and um, where that balance becomes interesting and why I like coming to things like NCCE or any, any of any sort of conference like that is it's everybody needs a shot in the arm. Everybody needs some face to face time to connect and get excited about whatever, right? Whatever it is, whether it's a new teaching idea, whether it's a new technology and how it might impact my teaching, um, that face to face time and, and putting in things like even coming to the situation room and, and listening for a while and, pushing yourself to think differently about something. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. And I think that's what's so cool about the globalization of learning is that we can keep pushing ourselves to think about things from a perspective that we've never would have even imagined in our, in our own self. And so, yeah, I mean, that's all over the place, but that's kind of what I think about it. Well, I want to give a – well, Jason's got something. I want to just say – Blab rocks because here I started the blab. I was afraid when I dropped out since I hadn't made you guys moderators or something like, oh my gosh, it's all dark. But how awesome that the moderator's internet connection dies and he resuscitates it by restarting the modem. And hey, the show, the show goes on. Technology keeps going on. Jason, what else did you have to chime in on with that? I would add this last thought that it's just important that we understand that, that all these ecosystems are being impacted. And one of the reasons why I like listening to, I, I listen to a couple podcasts related to cord cutting, um, uh, and, and the impact it's having on the media industry. But, um, you know, I, I think the media industry is an interesting cautionary tale about, you know, what happens when, when there is very disruptive technology that's at play. And I think educators and politicians and legislators and policymakers and doctors and attorneys, I mean, they, every, every profession is going to at some point have to adapt and change as we had with every other technological revolution in human history. So, you know, keep an eye on what's going on elsewhere um, in the same way that 
Um, if I could go back in time, I wouldn't want to have purchased stock in Blockbuster in 2002. I had wished, and my wife reminded me, reminded me this the other day, is that after Netflix, uh, uh, stock crash when they split up into two services temporarily. They were known as Quick for a while for the discs and then Netstrix streaming service. I said, man, I should go empty our savings account right now and invest it all in a Netflix because I know they're going to end up winning this with winning this war. And to be quite frank, I wouldn't be here right now because I'd be retired. So, uh, you know, like, but the, keeping an eye on those industries is an important part of, of I think, being, you know, uh, professionally responsible because in the same way that, you know, network television is uh, is turning into a wasteland and, and viewers are, are turning away from it, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in massive chunks. Cable can't attract anyone under the age of 30 to purchase their service. Um, you know, those are all symptoms of, of those changes. And I think education is quite also apt to, to be impacted by those factors as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, it is the top of the hour, and we need to do our Geeks of the Week. And, uh, Mike, I don't know if you've got one. We can let you go last. I, I see Jason's put one in. Um, and I did send you a direct message, Mike. If you'll uh, direct message me your your Gmail, then we'll get this doc shared. So if you want to put in any of the links or whatever. And want to invite everybody to visit edtechsr.com and click the link that says links, and you can access our, our show notes, the uh, things that we talked about and things that we did not. Uh, Jason, you want to go with your Geek of the Week? Yes. Um, uh, one of the topics I'm speaking on here at NCC this year is, is privacy and how to take control over your privacy settings. And I've discovered a very wonderful tool that, um, to be to be quite honest, has been a little mind-blowing for me. Um, it is the Google Web and App Activity page for your Google account. It's at history.google.com. Um, I'll put a link in, in the chat. Um, and it also appears in our show notes. But this is an amazing, amazing, amazing site that shows you pretty much everything Google has on you. It, it's, it throws its cards out and says, this is what we got, so do with it what you want. And I'm surprised and sometimes delighted and sometimes a little head-scratching at, at such interesting things like not only does it record what I search for, when I use Google now to to make that search request, it saves the audio. So if I if I talk to my phone and say navigate to Costco, then I can go back and find the audio clip of Google now and me saying navigate to Costco. And I, I knew all this, like I, I had a sense of all this, but it's so mind blowing. And um, I I trust Google. Um, with that information, but, um, it's, it's really interesting what, what, what they've collected on folks. And so history.google.com, um, be ready to, you know, to, to be somewhat surprised and hopefully delighted by what is, uh, in front of you there. So. So where that's going in the future, you know, <clears throat> if you think about people, I heard a story the other day about a man who hadn't, you know, canceled his wife's phone or maybe it was their home phone and he would, he would call and listen to the voicemail because he wanted to hear her voice. You know, think about what is coming in terms of the preservation. And then there's other things where that, you know, is taken in interesting ways where people are felt, you know, coming up with algorithms and things like that to be able to know how you would respond. And anyway, all those digital breadcrumbs and footprints that are left are, there's going to be both scary sides and then probably really humanizing cool sides to that. Absolutely. So my geeks of the week are uh, actually one that I just used last night with my sixth grade daughter who had recorded a little video that um, 
she was uh, doing a drawing and speeding it up in iMovie. She's like all into publishing on YouTube. And uh, she just recorded it flipped over. And so this is a free app called Video Rotate and Flip for iOS. And so it's handy if you end up, uh, for whatever reason, having your video turned, you can uh, you can flip it, and it's free. And then the other one is completely unrelated to that, but it's about the International Space Station. I think I've mentioned before my favorite app on Apple TV, and it's weird because you can't Google like you can for a regular iPad or I- iOS app on iTunes. You can get a link for it. You can't do that with Apple TV, so I don't know how they're going to – if they're going to address that. But it's called um, Space Station Live. It's 99 cents. And there's a high definition program where, you know, you get the, the high definition streams from the space station. And so, um, at our house or in my office now, I have a 55 inch uh, TV that we, we use for meetings to airplay, you know, stuff up there. It is just amazing. And today there's a little iOS app called ISS Spotter. And so we're looking up, up, up at this because you'll see this, you know, it goes around the planet. It's dark half the time. It's light. You see the sun come up, you know, where it's going on. And we look on the phone. Oh, look, they're going over, you know, the Yucatan. And look, there comes Florida. And, and it's live. I mean, that's really cool. So as a STEM teacher, I love that. And I loved uh, showing kids where they could go online uh, to find out where the, when the ISS was coming over your location. And then you can go out at like, you know, 630 in the morning and look in this particular direction at this angle and it'll be, you know, over for so many minutes. So anyway, that's, that's one of those things that's not, you know, maybe people are used to this idea that, yeah, we have astronauts. Yeah. There's people going around the planet all the time, but there's, there's something very cool about being able to see live. It's like this. We're live. There's a, there's a buzz here because it's, you know, it's not just recorded. Check it out. If you have an Apple TV, that's the app you need. Um, Space Station Live. Mike? All right. So mine is uh, an iOS app for recording, actually. And uh, it's one that I just came across the other day. It's called StickBot. And StickBot Studios app is uh, it's both in the uh, App Store and Google Play Store. And it is drop-dead easy, uh, stop motion animation like and what i really like about it and i think what makes this uh, valuable all the way down to the kindergarten level is that as uh you're taking those stop animation pictures there's a ghost delay that helps you show where your last photo took off and then your new photo so that you can really start to get start to get to it so that's i, I think that's called onion skinning there you go. So Stickbot uh, Studios app, um, and it's it's on both Google Play and iOS. That is awesome. All right, so we will have links to all of these amazing Geek of the Week um, notes on our edtechsr.com slash links, and we'll uh, we appreciate Peggy continuing to drop in all the links. You win our fan award. We, we would give you props, Peggy, if we could click right now to give you applause, but we can't do that. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes she should come in. There we go. We're clicking. So thanks to Jason and Mike for checking in from Seattle. Have you guys, you know, is the Starbucks just sponsor it with free coffee every day? Is that how it works? Absolutely. Good. Fresco uh, on the drip all day long. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's great. So we will be back next. I think I, I the next conflict we've got is, is in mid-March. Uh, I'll be in Brazil for a little STEM workshop in Sao Paulo, trying to hide from the mosquitoes and trying not to bring the Zika virus back to central Oklahoma. Um, um, yeah, we might have to start a little late next week, Wes, but I'll let you know. So actually, okay. I actually might bring Joyce again because we're going to be in the same place next week. So. Oh, you will? Okay. Yeah. But not for NCCE, something else? Nope. Site visit in Montana. So we'll join you from the hinterlands of Montana. Okay. So stay tuned. If you're not following EdTechSR on Twitter, we will let you know if we have to start late or what we're going to do. So very good. This is fun. All right. Well, thank you guys for carrying the torch and thanks to Blab for giving us a great platform that did not die when the host, uh, went dark. So over and out. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening to another amazing episode of the EdTech Situation Room with your hosts Jason and Wes. Remember to subscribe to us on Twitter and Blab, and access episode show notes on edtechsr.com, slash links. Content on the EdTech Situation Room is shared under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. Subscribe to our audio podcast feed in your favorite mobile podcatcher app, and check out our archived show videos on YouTube, the EdTech Situation Room where technology news meets educational analysis.